0: If you would please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Doing series gives one an opportunity to make corrections. I mentioned last week that Daniel was the object of hatred, and I suggested some avenues for thought. That human hatred is often irrational, Simply put, it oftentimes does not make sense. There may be excuses or rationalizations that are given, but generally speaking, it is irrational. Human hatred is often deadly. Cain killed Abel. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Saul tried to kill David. And supremely, we see this in the death of Jesus. It is the very nature of human hatred to kill. So John tells us in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The third avenue of thought that I suggested is that human hatred is essentially directed against God. Um, Even when we speak of murder, killing a human being, this is in essence an attack against God because this person bears the image of God. You can't kill God, but you can kill the next best thing if you wish, the one who bears the image of God. And again, in the death of Jesus, all of these elements come together. And then I ended by saying that human hatred is often demonic. Um, This does not come out of God's creation. It is something, it is the intrusion of a satanic mind. Um, But then questions were asked after the sermon last week. It seems that elsewhere in the Bible hatred is depicted in a different way that it is acceptable and one might even say commanded. In Psalm 31, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So this type of hatred I would say is not irrational it's not deadly it's not anti-god obviously it's not demonic. And then there is the matter of divine hatred in Psalm 5 you're not a god who takes pleasure in evil with the wicked you uh, with you the wicked cannot dwell the arrogant cannot stand in your presence you hate all who do wrong this is what God does. And Psalm 11 the Lord examines the righteous but the wicked And those who love violence, his soul hates. I think I should have been clear last week and more specific about the hatred we were seeing in chapter 6. And that is hatred against God's people. And in this case, specifically against Daniel. I've thought about this and perhaps after Daniel, do a brief series on a a theology of hatred. What does the Bible say about hate? Um, And we will see that it is used in different ways. And then I made a comment about the word habitual. That for me, it seems to have a negative connotation. And the response was, yeah, Damon, I think that's you. Um, so, uh, my apologies. I was talking about David praying. He had a habit. He had the practice of praying three times a day. And uh, know, maybe it says something about me that I see habitual as some, something negative. Okay. Today we begin the second half of the book of Daniel. It has been described as being less well-known and more daunting. One commentator put it this way, it consists of a series of visions very complex in their nature and often far from clear at first as to their meaning. Today we'll look at the first vision. It's found in chapter 7. And one of the keys, if not the key to this vision is the date when it was given. If you look at verse number 1 of Daniel 7, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. It is the first year of Belshazzar. I mentioned last week that Belshazzar was a regent. It was his father who had overthrown Nebuchadnezzar, but his father... Nabonidus was ill, and so Belshazzar was the regent. He was in place of his father. And this is the first year of him being on the throne there in Babylon. You may remember last week that we saw that Belshazzar was not anything like Nebuchadnezzar. What in fact we see is a definite shift, a change of style, of spirit, of outlook, of morale. It's reflected in what we saw in chapter 6, the great feast, the banquet that Belshazzar gives. And he brings out um, the goblets, the instruments, the cups that were from the temple in Jerusalem. He desecrates them, he defiles them uh, by using them in his great banquet. Nebuchadnezzar would have never done this. As we saw in chapter 1, he took the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, and he put them in the temple of his God, which would seem to us to be sacrilege, but it is, in fact, I think, a sign of reverence and respect. These are sacred objects, they need to go in a sacred place, and so he put them in the temple. Um, Belshazzar, no, this is something for fun, and I think it's deliberately done. It is to desecrate, it is to defile, and to demean, if you wish, the God of Israel. I think the shift that occurs between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar caused Daniel to rethink his life and his calling. See, up to this point, I think he could have justified being a part of the system. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, but he was open to the reality of God. He was a man of enlightened policies. And David had found, or Daniel had found that cooperation with such a leader didn't bring a moral uh, conflict within his heart, a religious, uh, some type of conflict like, I can't do this because this guy is this way. That in fact, as as the book unfolds, we see Nebuchadnezzar more and more being open to the reality of God. Not the case with Belshazzar. Not the case at all. This is, if you wish, a dark side. A dark side to governance that Daniel, up to this point, I would argue, had not seen. And I think, beginning in chapter 7, Daniel begins to see history, human history, human politics, and Babylon itself in a new light. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he couldn't remember, but Daniel tells him what it is and the meaning of it. It is a dream of a statue. And it shows the vanity of all empire building because the kingdom of God will come and smash all human kingdoms. It had four parts. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. We have four metals, if you wish, and of descending Value, if you wish, would go with gold all the way down to iron and then iron with clay. But they represent human empires. Now we come to chapter 7. And human empires are not represented by four metals, they are rep- rep- represented by four beasts. Um, and it's interesting, I think most translations use beast rather than animal, um, that there is something very beastly, if you wish, about their nature. The first part of the chapter is a description of the vision. And the second half is the interpretation of the vision. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Um, First of all, the vision. Verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It had been raised up or it was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh." After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted by it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Verse 12, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the vision. Now let me read to you the interpretation beginning in verse number 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise or will will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. What I find fascinating about the second part of the chapter, the interpretation of the vision, is that it doesn't really tell us much, does it? Um, At least it doesn't tell us what we want to know. Um, The four great beasts are four kingdoms that rise from the earth. Yeah, we get that part, but what do they represent? Interestingly, Daniel doesn't want to know this. He wants to know about the fourth beast. Now, for the sake of speculation, one could argue that the first beast represented Nebuchadnezzar, because he was like a lion, his wings are torn off, and then he was put on two feet like a man, given the heart of a man. And I think this represents what we saw in chapter five, or sorry, chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar loses his sanity for a period of time and it's like an animal, and then he looks up and he recognizes that God is the God of all creation. What Daniel is told, though, in response to his question about what this all means is found in verses 18 and 27. I think this is what is important and yet what is oftentimes pushed aside. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And then verse 27, then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Come back to that, but going back to the beast. uh, Daniel doesn't ask, it doesn't seem interested in the first three. Um, He is interested in the fourth. It seems more cruel. It has the ten horns. Um, But what are these beasts and, and what do they represent? We are not told. There are many theories, there are many opinions and interpretations. And I would argue that focusing on the beast misses the point of the vision. I'm not trying to belittle all the work that has been done. At least I think I'm not. Trying to decipher and figure out what the beast represents. I think these studies may have importance. But let's put ourselves in Daniel's place he saw these beasts and the horns not simply as having historical identity, oh, this represents this future kingdom, but as a typical example of the kind of human empires, petty powers that will arise here and there, now and then. If you look at human history, under various circumstances, you find the rise of kingdoms of political powers And yet God's purposes continue. God's purposes will be fulfilled. I think each age and each generation has to ask serious questions about the worthwhileness of the political system of which we are a part. I've mentioned this before, but in the last two decades in the Christian community among academics, there's been this sort of cottage industry of books on imperialism and uh, and many have concluded that empire is bad. All empires are bad and so the American empire is seen as evil. And I think again this misses the point of what is said in scripture about the kingdoms and about empire. What is important are not the kingdoms, but how they treat God's people, the saints, as they are described here. We must remember that what is important in Daniel's mind was not to define the empires exactly, but in chapter 2, particularly to fix in Nebuchadnezzar's mind that, you know what, your thing is temporary. There is something coming, the kingdom of God, and it is going to smash all human political systems that exist. And as we saw when we went through it, that the cause of these rise and fall, if you wish, of various kingdoms and empires is not particularly because of moral defects, which are found in all human societies, and not in social uh, factors or economic factors, but rather the kingdom of God is moving on. That's what Daniel's being told. And to, to sort of give it away, I'll mention it again at the end. The purpose of this vision is to encourage Daniel, who now not only lives in a pagan society, which he has been under Nebuchadnezzar, but now he lives in a pagan society that is at war with God and his people. But the kingdom of God, the hidden kingdom of God, is progressing. It has been all along, and Daniel needs to see this. Yeah, but in the meantime, we need to ask ourselves are all human political systems evil? Is it inevitable that all kingdoms, all empires will go bad? That they somehow will become so enamored with themselves? and it's all about their power and taking over. Um, does our political system, if it survives, need to grow into a beast? That is what we find in the United States at this time. that has been around for over 250 years. Will it become a beast? Is, is that what happens to every type of political system that emerges? This is rooted in another question, and that is, where does the beast, where does the evil come from, and where is it going? If you look in verse number two, my vision, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and the four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Um, The image would have made, I think, a lot more sense in Daniel's day than perhaps it does to us, because many Babylonians believed that at the beginning of time, it was just chaos. And then out of the chaos, you have these various things that emerge, and oftentimes deities, but then political systems, the Babylonian Empire being one of them. Well, one kingdom comes out, but then it is replaced by another, and another, and then finally you have the fourth one. Um, But I don't think that this is what Daniel was focusing on. This vision, as with everything we have seen in Daniel, is that this is God's world, and he rules. In chapter 1, when Daniel refused to eat the king's meat, and yet he excelled. In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but he can't remember it, and Daniel does tell him his dream, and the interpretation... You have in chapter 3 the three Hebrew children who are thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not bow down to his image and yet they emerge unscathed. Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to an animal state until he recognizes that this is in fact God's world and that he rules. The handwriting on the wall. God knows God. It's not simply that God knows. God is in control. And he tells Belshazzar, you know, you've been put in the balances. You've been found wanting and tonight you're going to die. And then last week we saw Daniel being delivered from the lions in the lion's den. These beasts, as terrible and as powerful as they may seem, are limited. Their power, their time is limited. But not the Ancient of Days. Verse number 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is God. This is a vision of God. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. One of the things I think we should see is that God is not only in control. I think that's too easy to say. But that God is in wise control. God knows exactly what he is doing. This does not mean, and let's be very clear on this, that we will understand what God is doing. Why he allows certain things to happen. We read as I watched this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. This tent this horn, this little horn that emerged, is defeating the people of God. How can that be if God is in control? And if God is in wise control. Verse Later on it says he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him given into his power for a time, times and half a time. Yes, even then God is in control. We may not understand. We may even rebel and say God what you're doing is not right. Your people should not suffer these things. But yes, God is in control, even when the saints are defeated and when they are handed over to evil for time, times, that's two and a half, three and a half, uh, half of perfection, if you wish. God is still in control. A question that may come up is, who is this Son of Man? If you look at verse number 13, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We who know the New Testament would quickly affirm that this refers to the Lord Jesus, who referred to himself when he was on trial as being the Son of Man coming under the clouds of power based here on Daniel 7. But what did Daniel understand by the phrase, the Son of Man? He certainly didn't know about Jesus. Um, He knew the Messiah was coming, but could not imagine what that would be like. What does Daniel assume? What does he get from this phrase, the Son of Man? Well, the beasts stand in contrast to humanity. The beasts are not seen as human. They're seen as animals. And what they do is to fight against humanity, those who are made in the image of God. The beast kingdoms, if you wish, are inhumanity or inhumane treatment of human beings. Marked by oppression, cruelty, their truth is brute force. Might makes right. And their policies lead to the perversion of what is truly human, humane, and good. So as such, the face of humanity might seem to be almost wiped out. Not simply the saints, though the saints are prominent here, but for a generation or two or three, the humanity of people is almost going to be obliterated by various political systems. But in the end, the Son of Man, who is the Lord Jesus, will be given sovereignty, power, and greatness. We who hold to the truth found in scripture cannot forget that human beings are made in the image of God, an image that he is redeeming through his Son. And this project has begun in the church. Jesus came and established a church, and what it means to be human is being reclaimed by God through his people in the church. This is the good news and we are to proclaim the good news, the gospel to a world that has uneasy dreams that is marked by rising and falling empires by those who seek to have power over as many as possible by those who live in fear even though it comes out as anger we saw this with Nebuchadnezzar by those who who become more and more irrational and oppressive in the use of their power. Why was Daniel troubled? You'll notice in verse number 15 and 28, he's not not delighted by this vision. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And in verse 28, which we've not read yet, the last verse of the chapter This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. What's interesting is that the first, in verse number 15, this is before he's given the interpretation of the vision. He's just had the vision and it troubles him. But now that he has told the meaning of the vision, now he is deeply troubled. Um, and his face turns pale. We might say, Daniel, why are you troubled? This is good news. The kingdom of God is moving. Uh, God will, through the Son of Man, deliver his people. Why are you so troubled? Let me suggest some possible reasons. First of all, it is a fearful thing to begin to understand the full present power of the demonic forces that have invaded our society and our world. They can wreak tremendous havoc. And in a sense, they can create hell on earth for individuals, but also for communities. See, to be given a prophetic word is not simply a matter of knowledge. Where Daniel could say, Ooh, I know what's going to happen in the future. I know and you don't know. I know what's going to happen. Um, no, I don't think Daniel, first of all, knew the future as such. But rather he was given insight into the nature of empires. And many of these empires are marked by great cruelty, oppression, the, the fourth beast, beast with iron teeth, See, David See, Daniel had been working with Nebuchadnezzar who wasn't a saint but he was fairly enlightened and open to the reality of God now he's down with the beasts with someone like Belshazzar that's what this vision is about and it is very troubling I think rightly it is a matter of concern That evil on earth can still possess and control individuals, institutions, and community. Thus we have Jesus telling us that we are to watch and pray. I think there is a need for watchfulness. The vision of beastliness of kingdoms may have really raised questions for Daniel. He is a part of the system. He is part of one of these beasts. And I think this is not a small thing. This is what he has given his life to. God has given him a calling vocation and he has exercised it. And suddenly he finds himself confronted by this vision of just horrible beastliness of political entities. I think in today's world each of us are in danger becoming too involved in the struggle for power, wealth, and status in our own society. We don't see the beastliness of it all because we're part of it. It's been said that we don't see our environment because we're a part of the environment. The last creature that you would ask to describe water is a fish. Because for a fish, that's where he lives. He, He doesn't recognize I mean that's just the environment and we are part of that as well and if we're not careful we will be like the rest of society struggling for power for status for wealth in Daniel's vision this is a ruthless a fierce struggle we might not see it that way in our day you know nobody got hurt nobody got killed no blood you know it's But in reality, I think the struggles in our society and in our lives can be just as ruthless and fierce. We can, in fact, become somewhat less human and treat others as less than human. And in a sense, become beasts ourselves. Amazingly and distressingly, this can come into the church the pilot plant where God, in fact, has begun the process of redeeming society, redeeming humanity, and yet the church oftentimes runs after wealth and status and power. Paul wrote to the Galatians, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbors yourself. Next verse. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He's writing to Christians who are part of the people of God in Galatia. They're acting like animals, like beasts, trying to devour each other. This is contrary to the great command to love your neighbours yourself. Paul told the Colossians, and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus did win the victory over evil, over death on the cross, but it still continues and struggles to do its very worst against those who bear the image of God and those who are the people of God. Which means that the things that troubled Daniel are still with us today and they should trouble us as well. Yeah, I think we are troubled, but for lack of a better way to put it, um, we are troubled in terms that are secular. You know, politics, the economy, uh, rights, human rights, civil rights. We don't think in terms of beasts. We don't think in terms of inhumanity to man. We don't think of ruthlessness and a ferocity that can mark things sometimes we don't even think in terms of evil because that smacks of moral judgment but sadly we don't even think in terms of the kingdom not in terms of the kingdom we are told his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him and then in verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. This is the kingdom of God. People worshipping the Lord Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But do we think in these terms? Are we just like everybody else? We think in political terms, economic terms, um, in terms of rights, I don't know if you've thought about this, but if the Lord Jesus does not return soon, the American po- Republic will probably cease to exist. We don't like to think that way, do we? Well, I don't think the Babylonians thought that they would crumble and fall apart, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans. See, there's only one everlasting eternal kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom we're a part of. And we are salt. We're to be salt and light in this world that is marked by cruelty uh, and inhumanity. But if we're not careful, we'll play by their rules and we will be possessed by the same things. Money, power, uh, status. Daniel was deeply troubled. He was a part of the system, and boy, what did that mean? What did that mean to be part of a beastly system? Well, as we will see, as we go through the rest of the book of Daniel, Daniel continues in his position. I don't think we are called to withdraw from society and go live, you know, out in the desert somewhere. But we are to remember who we are. We are God's people. And we are to stand against those things that mark the empire. This quest for power, for wealth. No, we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And people would say, if you do that, you're going to get eaten alive. You'll never survive. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, the saints were defeated for a time. time times and a half it's okay the son of man will come and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom we have to ask ourselves do we really believe the good news I think for many people the good news is we're going to heaven we put our faith in Jesus and we're going to heaven but the idea that God wants to redeem his creation and all humanity I think has gone past us And so if, in fact, someone were to come up to us and say, hey, I hear you believe in the gospel, that you believe in good news. What is the good news? You could say the good news is that empires will crumble, but the kingdom of God is forever. The good news is there will come people who will try to seize power over as many people as possible. But the kingdom of God is eternal. Those who strike out in anger because of their fear may do a lot of damage, incredible damage. But that's okay because the kingdom of God is coming. Bit by bit. Those who grasp or seek to grasp money and power, those who are irrational and oppressive in their power, Yes, but the kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus began it. He came, he gave his life, and now the kingdom of God is here. And we as God's people are to exemplify that. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Yes, we are American citizens because this is where God has put us. But our citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. And that is what is to direct our thoughts. I think I mentioned this um, several weeks ago, um, if not from the pulpit and and conversation, that after 9-11, a lot of Americans were very offended by different interviews in which Muslim Americans said, I'm a Muslim first and an American second. I'm like, you're not patriotic. But wait a minute. Are we not to be Christians first and Americans second? See, when we understand that, then even if America becomes a beast, our citizenship is still in the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom. God has put us where we are right now, this point in time, this place on the planet, to be faithful, to be salt, to be light, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how cruel or oppressive a system may be, we are to obey God. I think ultimately uh, chapter seven is not about the future. I I don't think, this is just my opinion, that it was intended for us to somehow try to decipher and uh, books have been written about chapter seven. Yeah, I don't think that's, the point is we may go through great darkness but the kingdom of God will prevail. And God gives this vision to Daniel to encourage him Yeah, the good old days under Nebuchadnezzar, they're gone and now you're dealing, this is the first year of Belshazzar and Daniel's saying, this guy's not a very nice person. That's okay. The kingdom of God will prevail. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you love us, that you saved us, and we do love you. But I suspect that our thinking oftentimes is more that of a beast than it is of one made in the image of God, and one being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves motivated by the same things that motivate those around us. We find ourselves dissatisfied if we don't have the things that we want. And so we don't think in terms of beasts or evil. If we don't even think in terms of your kingdom. Open our eyes to see this truth. That even if we go through dark times and we have not had to experience that, but brothers and sisters around the globe are experiencing that right now. You're still in control. And more than that, you are in wise control. There may be a time when we will be defeated. Maybe when it will seem that the Christian faith disappears for a generation or two or three. But you will be victorious. Jesus has begun the victory in his resurrection. Help us to see that. May we see that we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And even if we are told that's no way to live because you'll just be chewed up and spit out. No. We obey you. We obey God rather than man. Thank you for bringing us together today. A day in which we rejoice at the birth of Nevin Tam. And we also grieve for the loss of Paz. Be with her family uh, during this time. Be with Tim and Kim as well. Um, Give them peace. Give us peace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.